This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Leah, welcome to 2024. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> How was your Christmas holidays? Yeah, it's been, it was really busy. Um, spent a lot of time laying slabs around the pool uh, due to various factors. Um, but you have a pool, and that that is a benefit with the what another. Well, yesterday was another forty-two degree day. We've had. Yep. I, I think sun, Sunday's going to be forty-three again, and yeah, I'm so tired of it. Yeah, it's been <laughs> the hottest summer f- I can remember for a while. Yeah, yeah, and it does feel like in that. Terms of temperature and and the length of time that the temperatures are lasting for. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, after a bit of a break, we're back with a new guest. Um, so we've got Mariam Alessa on the podcast this time. Yeah, she's a PhD student and doing a really interesting topic about uh, diabetic foot disease. And yeah, it was yeah really fascinating to learn more about it for someone who knew absolutely nothing about it. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I was aware of people losing limbs due to diabetes, but I didn't really know much about it. I yeah. I didn't actually realize it was so common in the foot. I, okay. Again, I think I'd heard more about the blindness, but I think I've seen, you know, had friends who were diabetic or who are still diabetic, and mm-hmm. I just, you, they're, they're, they're always so nonchalant about it that I never really knew about all the different consequences of yeah. having diabetes and not managing it. So yeah. it was really interesting to learn more yeah. about that. No, that's, it is really interesting um, and really serious, as we will explore with Mariam. Um, you know, she's got a b- background in podiatry, uh, having worked in the Middle East uh, from Kuwait originally. Um, but, yeah, she'll tell, tell people about her journey through uh, research and practice um, and how she's ended up here at UWA. Yeah, it's, uh, it'll be very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, we'll let people listen and we'll be back at the end. Uh, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Mariam Alessa to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. So, welcome, welcome. <laughs> so this is actually our first one for 2024, so you're the first cab off the rank this year. Oh, yay. Yeah. So you have a very important topic that you're going to discuss with us today, which is um, great, it's one that we haven't looked at before. So it'll be good to have a, a chat about that and hear about the work you're doing. Do you just want to let people know um, a little bit about yourself, like what your education is and what you're doing now? Okay, um, I'm from Kuwait, and uh, I'm a diabetes specialist podiatrist. Uh, I've done my undergraduate at the University of Malta Mm -hmm. in Europe, and uh, then I decided to go and specialize in diabetes in the UK at the University of Brighton. Um, after that, I went to work at Kuwait for four years, approximately, and then I decided to come here mm. and do my PhD. Okay. How long were you in the UK for? Uh, approximately two years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find that? Uh, it was pretty chill. It was pretty laid back. Yeah? Yeah. I actually found uh, everywhere I've been to laid back, uh, except uh, back home. I found it quite intense. Yeah. Because... Uh, um I was the the only and first podiatrist there. Mm-hmm. Um 
And when I decided to specialize in, in diabetes, uh, in all honesty, I liked everything about podiatry. Like mm -hmm. I could have specialized in anything, but um, I did my research first and I wanted to see what was the demand back home. Mm -hmm. And I found that they really had a problem with diabetes. So I was like, okay. Let okay. me let me go for diabetes. Yep. Um, and I thought that I was gonna go back, and everyone was going to um, see me as this savior and hero. But uh, nobody really understood what a podiatrist was. Mm -hmm. um, so it was an uh, uphill battle yep. trying to get people to understand what a podiatrist was. But in all fairness. Um, there was someone who was a podiatrist in Kuwait 20 years before me, mm -hmm. um, but he was a totally different case. Um, he wasn't Kuwaiti. Um, he was stateless. I don't know what you know, yep. if you mean yeah. know what yeah. a stateless person was. Yeah, does that mean born somewhere? Uh, he was, no, he was born in Kuwait, in Kuwait but right. he didn't have uh, citizenship. Right, okay. Uh, his name is Talal uh, Nizi, so I have to give him a shout out. Okay. Um, and he went to the US uh, to study his DPM there. And uh, he got his uh, U.S. citizenship, I think. Mm -hmm. And then he came back as a U.S. Uh, podiatrist in okay. Kuwait. Yeah. And he practiced there for six months, but then he couldn't handle the uphill battle there. Yeah. So he decided to move to Qatar, mm -hmm. and he's still practicing there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, Qatar knew how to take advantage of him. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's doing quite well there like they've uh, established a whole department uh, in Hamad Medical City and mm -hmm. he's done quite great research and collaborated with um, David Armstrong and uh, I think a couple of years ago they've also been uh, awarded like uh, by the royal family both of them for their research contributions for the country mm -hmm. um, uh, so it's been great for him so far wow. yeah mm. yeah so I just had a couple of questions, actually. One is, so have you practiced as a podiatrist, or has it mostly been research that you've done? No, I've been I've been practicing uh, as a podiatrist, but mm -hmm. the the um, the interesting thing about practicing as a podiatrist in Kuwait that I've been practicing in a surgical department with surgeons. Mm -hmm. You know, oh. yeah. So it's purely like high risk. Um, mm. Uh, so not primary prevention. No, not no. at all. Okay. Not at all. I think maybe yeah. I've, I've I've clipped toes once or twice in the four years that I've wow. practiced there. So okay. it's mainly like high risk uh, um, amputations, uh, post amputation treatment, and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing is that you said that um, the other podiatrist that you mentioned that came from America faced a lot of uphill battles in Kuwait. Do you want to just tell us what some of those battles are, what some of the challenges are with the system there? Well, um, I think it has a lot to do with, and this might get me into trouble, but anyway, <laughs> uh, it has a lot to do with politics. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, a lot with politics, a lot with the bureaucratic inertia, and uh, it has a lot to do with the... Uh, um, other doctors fearing for their scope of practice, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, 
And I've had that problem too, I guess. Um, but he, like, he had an option of going out, like, and um, I did have the opportunity, like, he, when I met him at a conference, he did tell me, like, come and work with me, you mm -hmm. know, you could come. Um, but I opted to stay for mm -hmm. a bit longer just to see how it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And in all fairness, I did have the support of um, the head of the department in the hospital that I was working with. Um, and the reason that I had the support of the head of the department uh, of the surgical diabetic foot that I was working with, and his name is Nasr al-Hamadi, I have to give him a shout out too, was mm -hmm. because he's a general surgeon, but he did his fellowship in um, Spain, and he did it underneath a podiatrist. So wow. so he already knew what a podiatrist mm. was, mm. but uh, Talal didn't have that support. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pro we probably, for completeness, should say what a podiatrist is, just for people listening that may not know. Um, a, a podiatrist mainly is a health professional that deals with uh, diagnosing and treating any pathologies that are related to the foot and ankle. Mm-hmm. What okay. got you into that when you first starting your university? What made you go, yeah, this is the path I want to follow? Because it's not, it's probably not the most common one that you hear. A lot of people are like, I'm going to do marketing or engineering and then podiatry <laughs> is just not something you hear very often. So what made you choose it? Um, well, usually, like, I, I'm, I, I was a, uh, well, I'm still, I'm still a scholarship student. I was a scholarship student since I was an undergrad student. And uh, um, I was supposed to go for medicine, um, but then I went to visit a friend in Malta and she was studying medicine, but I met a friend of hers who was Maltese and she was, uh, studying podiatry. So I asked her like, what is that? And she started explaining it to me and I found that quite interesting. And like, I was like, oh, I, I feel like I want to do something like that. You know, it's quite rare. It's not available in Kuwait. So I decided to go for it. You know, mm. and that's and that's how it all started. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. And so now you're at the School of Allied Health here at UWA, mm -hmm. and you're doing a PhD, and you've just started fairly recently. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's been a year now. Been a year. Okay. Yeah. No problems. And and uh, we were just chatting before we started recording. You, you've got a field trip coming up to mm -hmm. go back to Kuwait or to the UAE. Is that to, right? To the UAE, and and that's another story because. Um, we were supposed to do this whole this whole research project was supposed to be in Kuwait mm -hmm. uh, for a whole year before I started my PhD. I was in contact with my supervisors and we were preparing the proposal and the proposal was about doing um, this diabetic foot disease research in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. But again, so many obstacles, so many politics and um, the main idea about this project was trying to emphasize the importance of a multidisciplinary team for the treatment of diabetic foot. And in Kuwait, at the time, we didn't have a diabetic, uh, a multidisciplinary team in one hospital per se. For example, um, I used to, as as the only podiatrist in Kuwait, I used to be seconded in different hospitals, but like my main hospital was Farwaniya Hospital. Mm -hmm. But for example, if 
at that time, um, if we had a patient that required revascularization, um, that patient had to go to another hospital, get the revascularization done, and then come back to our hospital post-revascularization and continue the treatment there. Mm-hmm. So um, we didn't have all the health professionals from the different disciplines in one hospital. So it required um, the data collection and everything to be done in more than one hospital. And that sort of created problems where people were like, are you going to compare our hospital to this hospital? Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they didn't really understand the concept of, oh, it's going to be completely confidential. You know, yeah. you know, it's not going to be comparing two hospitals and we're not going to be mentioning the hospitals and mm-hmm. it's going to be de-identified. Um, but then I met my external supervisor, uh, Dr. Hussam Yunus, who's um, at uh, Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was looking for a podiatrist for his multidisciplinary team um, there. And he wanted to offer me a job. And I was like, well, I'm leaving soon to do my PhD. And he was like, what is that about? What is the research topic? Mm-hmm. And I explained it to him. And then he's like, well, let's do it here. Mm-hmm. And that's how we shifted it to Abu Dhabi. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, well, how long will your field work be in terms of, like, are you going to be there for, like, how length of, like, how long? Six months a year or less? Uh, well, I'm going to be there for two months. And I last year I was there as well for two months. So it's probably, like, two months at a time every time I go there. Yeah. And mm. the, the thing is, uh, I don't really, once we start collecting the data, I don't have to be there all the time because it's going to be by red cap and I can and they have this um, online um, medical system epic where you can access the data wherever you are all over the world you know so it's not going to be a problem oh that's good yeah you mm. don't have to yeah because otherwise that would be <laughs> trying yeah. data collection like that yeah no it's great you can access it from here yeah if you need to yeah that's really good <laughs> So you've, you've mentioned diabetic foot disease. We should probably talk about what that is and how it happens and what you can do about it. Um, well, uh, diabetic foot disease, um, there's this um, misconception, I believe, even at home, at, uh, back home in Kuwait, uh, whether it's with patients or whether it's with health professionals, um they really believe it's a, a disease of the foot. Therefore, like, they believe, like, it's one professional that can handle it and manage it. But really, it's a disease of multiple systems that manifests in the foot. So it's really a, a complication of complications that okay. happen in the foot. Should we start with diabetes and then we'll work to the actual foot disease? Yeah. Um, yeah. So diabetes, we have like two types of diabetes. 
Um, uh, and uh, we have uh, diabetes type 1, which is usually an autoimmune disease um, uh, that leads to damage in the pancreatic cells that causes hyperglycemia, which is an increase in uh, the blood sugar levels. And that causes complications to the system. And usually that happens at an earlier stage, but it could happen at later stages. And uh, the second type of diabetes is the... It's the same, it's hyperglycemia, but usually that's due to lifestyle uh, issues that the patient suffers from, um, and that could be due to uh, obesity or uh, sedentary lifestyle or um, other issues uh, that could be um, controlled, let's say. And uh, diabetic foot disease is one of these complications. And uh, usually I call patients or um, uh, VIP patients. And what I mean by that is when you're dealing with a diabetic foot uh, issue, you have to think about the vascularity of the patient. Is his vascularity intact? And the infection status of the foot is there any issue for infection that led to um, a diabetic foot disease? And uh, pressure offloading, uh, is there any pressure that caused uh, the, uh, the disease in the foot? And what I mean by diabetic foot disease per se, it's usually an ulcer that led to a diabetic foot disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, so it's a combination of those three things happening, really. Um, uh, uh, the uh, pressure uh, that the patient isn't feeling because he lost protective sensation and uh, neuropathy as well that happens to the foot and that's due to diabetes being there uncontrolled usually and the duration is more than 10 years of diabetes that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, low uh, um, peripheral uh, vascularity and all these uh, factors come into play and uh, lead to uh, um, an ulcer in the foot. And that ulcer, for a regular person that has a wound in the foot that can heal in two weeks, a patient can stay for a year or more with an ulcer and it can increase the risk of an infection and if there's an infection that could be a systemic infection that could lead to septicemia which is an infection in the blood and that could lead to an amputation at the end. Mm. Wow. So it can be, maybe this is a silly question, but it can be if you have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, as long as it kind of meets those kind of conditions that you were talking about, then you could be at risk of it. It's not like, oh, well, if you have type 2 diabetes, then you can... Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It could be either one. So And so the key is that it goes untreated. So people can take medication for diabetes or they, you know, like insulin and that sort of thing. Are you saying if they don't get treatment for their diabetes, then they're at higher risk of this happening with their foot? Well, uh, for example, our patients, they do get treatment for diabetes, but still their diabetes wouldn't be controlled, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'd be telling us, oh, well, yeah, I am taking my medication. But then you check their blood sugar and it's high. You you check their HbA1c, which is like measuring their blood sugar level, the average for the last three months, and oh, it's high. 
high. It's been mm-hmm. high for mm-hmm. the last three months, so you know it hasn't really been that controlled. And uh, even if you do have controlled diabetes for the average of the last three months, we don't know how it's been for the last ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and that could have affected your neuropathy, which could have affected your protective sensation. So we don't know if you have that protective sensation intact. So that's why it's very important for you to get the foot screening done, you know, whether it's by a professional uh, podiatrist or um, your GP, for example, you know. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, categorize you according if you're a a low risk or a high risk or a moderate risk. And depending on that, that's when we see you, whether it's monthly or every three months or every six months or annually. Mm-hmm. Would it be something like I'm thinking about f- friends I knew at school who had type one diabetes? Is this something that affects? Could it be all ages, or is it you more likely to see this sort of thing in older patients if they're less active? Because I'm imagining feet. If you're like kids, often are running around, doing all that. Are they more at risk if you do more activity or less at risk, or is it not really about that sort of thing? It's more about you know, is has it been controlled? What's like their vascularity and things like that? Um, well. Like I said, it's a um, a disease to due to a multi system organ failure. Like so, it's a complication of complications. So, for example, if we have patients with renal failure, these are the highest risk of patients. For example, you can get a patient that um, had his. You know how you measure your diabetes with that prick. Pr- yeah. Uh, prick pin. Yep. Um, yeah. Device. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a patient that had his uh, um, diabetes measured with his done on his toe, and that's oh. and that patient was a renal failure patient, and he got gangrene on that toe. You know, wow. so that's that's a very very high risk patient. Those patients, those renal failure diabetic patients, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, younger patients, it's less likely to happen to them because they're younger. The diabetes duration wasn't that long, but again, if it's uncontrolled, they're more likely to get infection. You know, yeah. I have had patients that are young come to me for, with an ingrown toenail, for example. Mm. Um, but it was severely infected mm-hmm. due to their uncontrolled diabetes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so the the seriousness, the different different levels of seriousness that you see, you just mentioned an ingrown toenail. Um, I mean, I'm assuming it goes from there to like really affecting a bigger part of the foot and the ankle, possibly. Do you want to talk us through the sorts of um, problems that you see? <sighs> well, the thing is. With diabetic patients, they usually m- most most of the diabetic patients that I see, um, they've lost their protective sensation, mm-hmm. so they don't feel any pain. Mm-hmm. And because they don't feel any pain, um, they have this sort of disconnect. So even if they see there's a problem with the foot they don't actually think it's that severe because they don't feel it so they come at very very late stages mm-hmm. in the clinic you know and usually when they come it's they usually come with the moderate to severe infections 
where the infection has already set in and uh, the ulcer has already probed to bone and there's already uh, pus coming out and they mm-hmm. require either severe surgical debridement or some form of minor amputation to be done, mm-hmm. you know. So a debridement, just, is that cleaning out a wound? It's, it's cleaning out the wound and removing the devitalized tissue that's there. Okay. Yeah. No worries. And so what's the worst case you've seen? Like how much of somebody's leg did they lose, for example? It would be a major amputation or death. Right, okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty serious. Yeah, very serious. I guess it's something that I never, I mean, I never heard of it until I, when we found out we were doing the podcast and I was just having a read and I was like, I just had no idea that this was something like yeah. that and then to, something that can lead to death. Now, you've chosen to do yours in a certain part of the world. Um, I'm assuming there's a good reason for that. Do you want to talk us through, like, what countries maybe are most affected by this problem, like where the highest prevalence is? Well, um, according to research, uh, according to um, the International Diabetes Federation, um, the Middle Eastern countries um, are one of the highest countries when it comes to the prevalence of diabetes in the world. But when we zoom in into the GCC countries, and what I mean by GCC is the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, and the Gulf Cooperation Council countries are six countries, which is uh, Kuwait, uh, United Arab Emirates, um, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia, and uh, Qatar, and uh, did I mention them six? Uh, I think, I think so. that's... Yes. Yep. 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 Okay. We, yeah, we, we can double-check. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> All right. Yeah. So um, these, these six countries are the highest among the um, Middle Eastern countries. Um, I think it's uh, four... One out of four people have diabetes, are affected with diabetes. Mm. And there's one study, I think, conducted in the UAE, United Arab Emirates, that there's approximately 15% of the population that have undiagnosed diabetes, you know, on top of that. So it's 40% then, it becomes 25, but 40 with undiagnosed ones. Yeah. Yeah. Right. How does that compare to to Australia, for example? Um, Australia... Well, Australia has a better infrastructure, let's say, Mm -hmm. when it comes to diabetes uh, management. But there's there's a gap in Australia when it comes to um, the Aboriginal population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the Aboriginal population, they're more likely to get amputations due Mm -hmm. to diabetes Mm -hmm. than the non-Aboriginal population. And uh, um, there's a lot of factors uh, in play for that. Uh, There's genetics and there's also because they're in rural areas and there aren't any health systems into play, 
roots there mm-hmm. um, and uh, cultural factors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, I've also uh, read that uh, in Australia, uh, do you have Medicare, is it? Yeah, the universe, uh, universal health system, Medicare. For yeah. a patient, uh, they can have up to five free visits for um, a non-communicable disease, any non-communicable disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can, includes all non-communicable disease, not just diabetes. Yep. But that, for a diabetic patient... Let's say I'm a diabetic patient and I have, I require screening every six months. That means like those five visits and I have other um, conditions, that means it won't cover all the conditions. So mm-hmm. there's a gap there already. Okay. In, you know, in, in the Australian in system. Aus- in the Australian system. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, there have been studies that said if best practice is implemented in the Australian system, then there would be, I think, around five million uh, Australian dollars saved in mm. one region only in South Australia. Right. Okay. Yeah. Do, do we know how many people in Australia have diabetes? Roughly? I'm I'm not sure about the number, okay. but I do know that, um, for example, the, um, uh, blindness, mm-hmm. um, diabetes is the leading cause of the blindness in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, and, and obviously you're focusing more on the Middle East, but I know in the US they've had huge problems with the price of insulin in terms of it's getting to a point where people aren't got, unable to afford it and they just say they're trying to ration their insulin. So are we seeing cases in America and other countries where prices of insulin is going up where we're leading to more complications for diabetes because it's being less controlled? I know insulin is just one way to control diabetes, but it's a... It's a major way. It's a pretty major way. Yeah, 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 actually. Um, And and they're doing all these studies, for example. um, And it's not just like, for example, I've read this really interesting study that um, has shown that international dollars don't really um, depict the real burden of diabetic foot disease or diabetes where it showed like for example uh, when you come and manage an ulcer in the US it uh, reflects uh, um, let's say five to seven days of income for the person but if you take that same ulcer and manage it in India then that's seven years of income for that person. Wow. So mm-hmm. that's a huge economic burden in some countries. Yeah. You know? And they are now doing these studies in the U.S. where they're seeing, like, okay, if we um, put best um, practice into place, how much are we going to save in Medicare? And they're finding millions that they're going to be saving 
you know. Um, and I think there are some states now that there are offering for people like that come from low socioeconomic um, backgrounds, uh, subsidized or free insulin, because they know in the long term it's going to save them a lot of money when it comes to the management of complications. Mm. Yeah, it's. I think it's partly driven by the fact diabetes causes so many other things, right? Yeah. That if you don't handle the diabetes properly at the beginning, then you diabetic foot disease and blindness and all these other things that affect people's ability to work and earn money. And then obviously they require more treatment, yeah. you know, from different professionals later on, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that I think it's probably a good time to start talking about your PhD and what you're planning to do because you're obviously... Have have an almost encyclopedic knowledge on the topic, um, but you're obviously wanting to find out something in particular with your PhD, and what, what are you going to focus on? Um, well, uh, as I've mentioned, like the PhD is mainly going to be conducted at Cleveland Clinic, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm going to have the support of my external supervisor, um, Dr. Hassam Yunus, who's um, the chairman of the vascular surgery department there. And uh, they have a multidisciplinary team in place and uh, they have a diabetic limb salvage program in place there. And their multidisciplinary team consists of uh, vascular surgeons and surgical podiatrists and wound care nurses and vascular technologists. Uh, so this team is going to form the backbone of our investigative research. And uh, our research will focus on diabetic foot disease in the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, and it's going to involve a series of linked studies. So study number one is going to be a literature review. So we're going to do a literature review to understand the current diabetic foot disease practices in that region. And study two, we're going to analyze the admissions and amputation trends to assess the diabetic foot disease burden. And study three, we're going to identify the risk factors contributing to diabetic foot disease burden. And uh, the final study is going to be evaluating the impact of the multidisciplinary team on uh, the diabetic foot disease outcomes. Mm -hmm. So are you... In evaluating the, the team's impact, are you looking at different time periods where there was and wasn't a team operating to see what the difference is? Um, uh, that's, that's a very nice study. That's going to be my, my favourite one. It's, yeah. it's, that, that one's my Roman Empire. Because uh, yep. uh, <laughs> that, that one's going to be um, an interrupted time trend, actually. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. So we're going to uh, do... Um, uh, before and after, mm -hmm. and uh, it's going to be a temporal time trend. Mm. And uh, it, the limb salvage team or the multidisciplinary team was established in 2019. So we're going to go all the way back to 2017, I think. That's when the hospital was established. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to compare the trend from 2017 to 2023 but we're going to put the interruption in 2019 mm -hmm. and that's when the multidisciplinary team was established yep. and we're going to compare before the and trends, after. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
And uh, I'm assuming the prevalence of these of this problem doesn't really change across that period. So any changes in outcomes is really attributable to that team, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the outcomes of interest would be uh, the major adverse cardiac events and the major adverse lower limb events. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason we've chose major adverse cardiac events as well as major adverse limb events, because recent research has found out that um diabetic foot disease worsens cardiac events or worsens coronary heart disease mm-hmm. so most people that end up with amputations also end up with cardiac events or die wow. due to cardiac like, events like a heart attack or something like that yeah 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 okay interesting I know that yeah. wow I feel like I'm learning a lot <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, there's a, a lot of different data there and I was going to ask you, have you ever worked with like hospital records, like analysing ED data and hospital records and that sort of thing? Um, not to this extent, mm-hmm. no. Like I've done research before. Um, uh, I've done reviews before. I've done uh, um, observational studies where I've collected data. I've uh, done qualitative studies. Mm-hmm. But uh, the good thing about uh, being here is that we're going to replicate a study that has been done previously in Western Australia um, Mm -hmm. that has... um, It's a study about temporal trends of lower limb amputations Mm -hmm. in Western Australia, uh, I think from 2000 to 2010. And they want to replicate that study from 2010 to 2020. In, in, in Western Australia. Okay. So my supervisors, um, two of my supervisors was like, okay, let's um, replicate the study with updated data mm-hmm. and let's get you to collect the data in um, Western Australia. Mm-hmm. So we get you um, acquainted with how to collect the data okay. before you actually do it in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Who, yeah. who led that, st- those, that study originally? Uh uh, one of my supervisors, um, Deborah Sean, was there, mm-hmm. uh, was part of the team, and Lee Netkoff was yep. there as okay. well. And uh, there was also a very, very famous vascular surgeon as well who was part of the team. Yep. So it was a very good group yeah. of... So, yeah, all right, all right. And we're going to have also uh, um, uh, my supervisor, Kevin Murray, who's going to be on yep. the team as well for yeah, this that's, study. That's sort of why I asked, because a lot of that type of work gets done at our school in population health, and I know that you actually have a couple of supervisors from population health, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do, I do have uh, Kevin Murray and Barbara Natabi. Natabi, yeah. Yeah, yeah very yep. good. <laughs> Yeah, so have you had to do much sort of upskilling in terms of data analysis and linked data and that sort of thing as part of your PhD, or are you having to do that? Um, what do you mean by upskilling? So learning how to analyse those data and what how to, how to use them? Um, yes, and that's going to be part of my field work as well because they want me to be there so they can train me on how to use their EPIC system, their online system. Mm-hmm. Um, and first they're going to be training me on how to do it with um, dummy data. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, 
here they have linked data. And over there, they have their own form of linked data as well, which is quite interesting because, um, for example, if we have a patient that has been admitted to our hospital and then gets discharged and then for some reason gets admitted to another hospital, I can find that out by accessing the system from my hospital, mm-hmm. you know, so their system is linked for for all hospitals yeah. uh, in the UAE. Okay. So even if this uh, patient gets uh, admitted to my hospital, I can find out their history and how which hospitals they were admitted previously. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have a similar system here in Western Australia. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can go to each hospital separately, which is a pain, but we have yeah. the data linkage branch that combine it all and each patient gets their own number and gets followed through all of them. Yeah. Yeah, so are you are you doing like the linked data course that gets run at our school or or biostats or anything like that? No, I've done I've done biostats one mm-hmm. and I've done biostats two. Okay, uh, under the demand of uh, Kevin. Kevin, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I did biostats last semester, so yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, and uh, apparently there's a, another course that they're developing, Dr. Kevin. Yeah, it's a more advanced course, more advanced than biostats too. Yep. Um, uh, that they're going to be running soon, so he's going to enroll me in that one too. Okay. Yeah. That sounds good. I might yeah. have to do that course when it happens. <laughs> yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll see other people do the course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Leah and I have had conversations about doing biostats too yes. and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's That all sounds really interesting. Um, so what will happen with your work? Like where, where do you want it to get translated to and who do you think will use it? Um, well, I hope... I I really hope that this work isn't just about numbers. It's like it's more for impacting lives. I hope that it will inform national and regional policies. And I hope that in the future like we're 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 treating this it's it's a we're creating a data set. We're creating one data set for studies two, three, and four. And it's a hospital based data set, but we're hoping that in the future it's gonna develop into a local data set and then into a regional data set for all GCC countries. Mm-hmm. And my wish and my dream is that it will go and expand further to all Middle Eastern and Northern African countries and maybe Africa as well, you know, and we'll have a continuous registration system where we can compare each other's data, data sets mm-hmm. and uh, that will improve the research for this region because the research is very scarce and based on the preliminary research that we've been doing so far um, with our literature review because we've already started the literature uh, the research that's coming out um, there has been research that's coming out recently Um, it's very heterogeneous you know we need something that's more uh, homogeneous, let's say. So consistent methods yeah. and consistent yeah, exactly. approaches. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. You'll probably see that with your scoping review. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite difficult to analyse and synthesise evidence when it's really different like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So once we can, uh, hopefully we can improve the outcomes of our patients that are living with diabetes. Mm. Yeah, okay. 
Now, I know that you've, this is obviously an area of passion for you, amputees and amputation, and there's obviously a lot of stuff going on in the Middle East and Eastern Europe right now in terms of wars and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I know you wanted to discuss something around Gaza and the amputee crisis there. Did mm-hmm. you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, uh, well, the the amputee crisis in Gaza was is not um, new. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been an amputee crisis in Gaza since um, two thousand and nineteen. Um, when uh, the occupation forces opened fire on Palestinian protesters. It resulted in 120 amputations, um, and 20 of those amputations happened to children. So um, a U.S.-based foundation, which is called the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, uh, took it upon themselves to help these children. And they did that in a way where they used to um, bring those children to the U.S. Um, and provide them with prosthetics and rehabilitation and then send them back home. Mm-hmm. And that would improve their quality of life immensely. But now, with the amputee crisis currently... Um, it has uh, exploded immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, according to UN statistics, since October 7, 10 children on average have lost one or both of their legs every day, um, with many amputations performed without anesthesia. Mm. And uh, since the end of November, um, there have been around a thousand amputations done. And they don't have a, a number now, but for every child that has been killed, there are at least three children disabled. So mm. that is a big number yeah. that we have. Mm. And uh, children are nearly seven times more likely to die from blast injuries than adults, as they're more vulnerable and sensitive to injuries according to the charity, because their skulls are still not fully formed and they have underdeveloped muscles, mm-hmm. which makes them more prone to um, injuries such as amputations and death. Mm. And due to the lack of medical supplies, um, they're more likely to have risk of osteomyelitis, which is bone infection, mm-hmm. if they don't receive uh, the appropriate medical care. And uh, these injuries and these bone infections would require further amputation. Right. Oh, so they could have one amputation, but then there's an infection and then just it just keeps... Oh, gosh. Exactly. Mm. And there's another problem as well. Um, according to the World Health Organization, only 30% of the pre-conflict medics are working there. And that's either due to the killings or detentions or displacements. Um, And what has happened in the Ukraine um, is that they've had also um, amputations due to trauma. So um, they've had uh, organizations such as uh, Doctors Without Borders and Humanity Inclusion, where they've developed modern rehabilitation systems influenced by a, a Finnish model. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, what they do is they provide training and technical support to the local healthcare workers there, so they could provide uh, um, individualized prosthetics for the children and the adults as well, and rehabilitation so they can improve their quality of life. Um, so I'm hoping once a permanent ceasefire happens, um, then that's something that can happen for uh, Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you know, instead of providing them with fish, you can teach them how to fish. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so they can start to sustain a program rather mm-hmm. than just receiving aid all the time. Yeah, exactly. Have you been to Gaza yourself? No. Okay. No, we 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 we, we can't go to Gaza because mm-hmm. like the borders are mm-hmm. controlled by the occupying force, and our country. Um, doesn't uh, allow us to go there until uh, Palestine is has control of its border. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's they talk about a two-state solution, like when that happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which seems a long way off at the moment mm-hmm. in the current circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's th- thanks for um, bringing that really serious issue um, to our attention because it's not something we we obviously know that, that it's a really serious situation over there, but these sorts of outcomes are not things that you immediately think of. You know, like amputations without anesthesia and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and, and, and the kids, like, there are kids that are younger than one years old that are getting amputations, so these are kids that haven't learned yet how to walk and they've mm. lost their legs. Yeah. And there are kids that are so young. I've seen a video of a kid asking the doctor that had a double amputation that was asking him if my legs can grow back, you mm. know, like they still don't comprehend yeah. that this is a yeah. permanent uh, injury, yeah. you know. Wow, yeah. yeah, hard for us to uh, relate to that at all, you know. Yeah. in our privileged society. Um, and uh, according to research, um, according to research for uh, diabetic patients, um, diabetic patients with diabetic foot disease fear amputations and infections of the foot more than death. Mm-hmm. Wow. So imagine that kids have that, mm. you know, on top of that bombardment, something that adults fear more than death. Yeah, like it's. And yeah. trying to how do you how do you explain to a two year old, three year old, something yeah. like that? It's it's yeah. You don't really have words for it. It's it's it would be really oh, yeah, really horrible. difficult. Yeah. So uh, once you finished your PhD, Mariam. What, where do you see yourself going? Are you going back back into practice or a combination of research and practice or just research? Um, uh, I'm really enjoying the process and I'm not really tying myself to a certain outcome, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I can see myself doing both. I can see myself doing uh, just research. But really my main aim is in the future is to do those two things that I've mentioned, uh, establish a sustainable rehabilitation centers for people that have been living in war zone areas such as um, Palestine and Syria and South Lebanon Mm. and uh, create a continuous registration system uh, for the whole MENA region. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. But yeah. also, yeah, future you. As I always feel like when people ask me, 
similar stage of you with PhD. What, what are you going? What's your plans for after your PhD? Am I like, that? That's <laughs> future me will have a great idea about what to do. Yeah, no, that's great. Look, I think um, that's been a really great conversation, and it's good to talk to you at this early stage of a PhD because it gives us the opportunity to come back to you in a couple of years' time and hear how things have gone and what you found. If you if you're up for that, yeah, definitely, yeah, sure, it'll be great. It's a really important topic, and yeah. I wish you all the best for the studies that are happening right now. Oh, thank you for having me. You guys were great. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Thank you. I learned so much. (laughs) (laughs) And that was our conversation with Maria Melissa. Yeah, that was, it was really eye-opening. I feel like I spent so much, I was so enthralled in what she was saying and yeah, all the different. I I just didn't realize half the things that she had mentioned. Mm. Yeah, no, it's re- it's really fascinating um, just to hear how different parts of the world sometimes what we see as a manageable health problem becomes really unmanageable and leads to really serious consequences. And even in, on our own doorstep, as we we're talking about in the Aboriginal community, you know, this is a major issue, um, and it's probably not one that gets a lot of attention. I don't think. No, it doesn't really feel like it. I think because, you know, as I've you know said before, knowing people who have diabetes, because it seemed like, oh, well, it's just something that's so easily managed here. It's, but it's not like that in all communities in Australia. And, yeah, we don't talk about it. And yeah. I'm sure in our rural communities as well, say, well, it's yeah. Yeah. not very manageable. That's it. And it's very impressive t- um, that Mariam's doing this work and I can see, you know, obvious impact you know, from it in the Middle East and, and even here as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what she finds in her research, hopefully talking to her in a couple of years' time and, yeah, yeah, hearing what she's discovered. Yeah, no, it's a really, really worthwhile project and she was a delightful guest. Yeah. Yeah, sh- shared a lot with us. So, yeah, it was great to great to learn. Um, yeah, so we'll, we will have another episode coming up soon. Um, but in the meantime, if you like that episode or... Uh, wanted to tell us he didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, you know, or not. <laughs> um, you can get in touch with us at meaningofhealth at outlook.com and at health means what on X, formerly Twitter, uh, and on Facebook. I think if you just search, search for the meaning of health, we've got a page there as well. Yeah, that. And, uh, and Instagram too. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, send yeah. us your funniest reels. I'm sure you can find. <laughs> I'm sure you can find some. That's it, uh, and we'll look forward to coming back with another episode soon. Great. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming, Courtney Webber and Leah Roberts with mixing and music by Craig Cumming.